Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath to the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shezbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Thanks, Corin, and hello, everyone. My name's Jamie, if we haven't met yet. I'm really looking forward to getting into the book of Ezra with you all. Uh, but let me start by telling you two stories. Uh, in 1928, a careless lab technician uh, went away on holidays and he came back and realised he didn't clean up properly before he left and he, and he let some of his equipment go mouldy. Uh, story two also occurred in 1928. Uh, a gifted, brilliant researcher changed the course of medicine uh, in his lab uh, by discovering the first antibiotic, penicillin. Okay, you might have caught me out. I'm just telling you two versions of one story. Uh, which one is true? Uh, I guess, yeah, they're both factual, right? Um, but in the context of history and human discoveries, the second one's probably the more significant one. Uh, psychologists would tell us that uh, we tell ourselves stories every day, uh, and the kind of stories we tell about the facts of our lives shape our ability to cope. We can tell ourselves that we're the hero in our story. Uh, life is about what I get done and the impact that I, the main character, uh, have on the world around me. Or we can cast ourselves in a victim role. Uh, the world is chaotic and scary and things just happen to me. Do you ever find yourself uh, telling yourselves those kind of stories? Uh, or is it just me? Uh, what kind of narrative is shaping you at the moment? Well, the great news of Ezra 
is that there is a better and truer story that enables us to face the realities of life, good and bad, with both realism and hope. It's the story of a kind and faithful God saving a people precious to himself. If you're someone who follows Jesus, you'll know that you need reminding that there is meaning in the humdrum of life, in the ups and downs, and in the seeming chaos of the world. Ezra gives us a beautiful window into the story that drives everything so that we can tune into it a bit more. If you're someone interested in whether the Christian message is credible, Ezra is a great place to see how the Christian worldview makes sense of life as it deals with a period of time where people face some great joys but some terrible and confusing discouragements. So let's read again from verse 1 in your outlines. In the first year of King Cyrus uh, of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved. That phrase really sets the scene for what the book of Ezra is all about. It's a story of the God who is always true to his word. Uh, We're in point one in your outlines. And if you're anything like me, uh, Ezra might not be the most kind of ruffled and well-worn part of your Bible. Uh, It's taken me a while just to get used to where to flip to find it. Uh, It deals with a part of history that uh, is often less familiar Uh, where God's people Israel left their years of exile, but before Jesus' birth. Uh, It's an unfamiliar patch where a group of faithful Israelites come back to Jerusalem. So let's take a moment just to kind of set the scene. Ezra starts in the first year of Cyrus, that's um, 538 B.C., Uh, For God's people Israel, that marks almost 50 very dark years uh, since the last part of this once great nation to fall, Judah in the south, uh, was finally shattered in 586 BC uh, by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he brutally sieged the capital Jerusalem and dragged all the survivors into exile to indoctrinate them. And perhaps worst of all, in that terrible year, 586, he burned their sacred temple to the ground. The place where God promised to be present with human beings is gone. But now, some decades later, a new king is in charge, Cyrus the Persian, who rose up from the backwaters to conquer the massive Babylonian empire. And those Israelites living as strangers in a strange land, the ones who remembered God's promises, they might have perked up. Because many years ago, their prophet Isaiah had named Cyrus as the one who God would raise up to return them home from the exile. There's something bigger going on in this story than the chaotic rise and fall of godless world powers. And Ezra reminds us specifically of what God said through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. According to Jeremiah, the exile meant something. Uh, It was God's judgment on his stubborn, stubborn people who time and again found things to live for other than their creator. 
Uh, It's a bit like the story of the human race, really. And despite God's warnings and his pleas with them from the start, Israel didn't listen. And so tragically, Jeremiah promises that they will serve the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years. A very real, very dark, but very limited time of punishment. In, uh, later in Jeremiah's prophecy, he says that when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, Jerusalem. God is merciful. He won't abandon them. And so here we are in Ezra 1. It's been 48 years since that terrible day when the southern tribes were deported to Babylon. Not quite the 70 years of Jeremiah yet, and maybe that's just a round number uh, for a long but limited time. But about 20 years later, in Ezra 6, as we will see, the temple building project would actually be complete. And 70 years after it was once destroyed, God's people are there praising him in his temple once more. And that leads us really to the big theme of this book. God is true to his word. In the midst of political struggle and human flakiness, there is meaning. Because God moves heaven and earth and even hearts to bring a people home to himself, just like he said. And that's a message Ezra's first readers really needed to hear. The book covers about a hundred years of history, starting with the temple rebuilding, uh, before Ezra himself appears uh, in chapter 7, with another generation of returnees to teach them God's word. Just imagine being there. You've grown up in another country, and you're back in this historic place. It's a time of great excitement. There's no doubt God is doing things. There's a great rediscovery of the ongoing power of the Bible. But with that comes the realization that things aren't what they should be. The temple isn't as great as the first one. Life is still hard. And where is the king that God had promised? Jerusalem. I mean, I don't think you can really even see it on that map. It's really just a blip in a foreign empire. And where is the great change of heart that God spoke of? You know, Ezra begins with this triumphant list of people who returned uh, to the, the promised land. But it ends quite weirdly and abruptly with a list of people who sinned. Ezra's first readers are working out how to be faithful in their current situation where they're yearning for God's promises to be fully realized. They needed to be reassured that they are a part of a story given by someone, driven by someone who is always true to his word. That's a message we need to hear as well. We can look back and see even more of God's track record of delivering on his word. But people who follow Jesus are a strange minority, aren't they? And an imperfect one. And we're still longing for that end result. We need to hear what Ezra has to say so that we can see with more clarity just what story we're a part of. 
Well, now that we've hopefully seen a bit of the big picture of Ezra, let's zoom in in point two. God moves a king. Uh, Let's start again and look at the start of the passage there in your leaflet. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. This new king on the block makes quite a clever political move. He allows religious freedom to this minority group. And he says it in a way that's very respectful to their God, doesn't he? Go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple with my backing, and may your God be with you. That's a very different tactic to old Nebuchadnezzar, who stamped out other religions to show who was boss. Cyrus is tolerant. And history tells us that's consistent with how he treated other religious groups in his empire. Archaeologists have discovered an ancient cylinder on which Cyrus recounts his triumph over Babylon. And it gives them other examples of his tendency to be very sympathetic and even identify himself with the gods of those he conquered. Uh, So he says, I returned to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein, and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo, their Babylonian gods, for a long life for me. You can see how that would have made Cyrus quite popular amongst his new subjects. Go, worship your gods, have a great time and say a prayer to them for me. It's a clever move and Cyrus is remembered very warmly in the Bible for it. But who's really in charge here? Ezra 1 gives us beautiful insight to the story behind that story. Cyrus made that move ultimately because God moved his heart to do it. There's something bigger going on than politics. God is calling his scattered children home. Seeing it from that perspective, we can smile at Cyrus's words. You know, when he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. That's a fairly arrogant statement. But it's truer than Cyrus knows. God has given Cyrus great power, but not for Cyrus's glory. Uh, We can smile. And Cyrus stresses a couple of times that, you know, this God belongs to Jerusalem, presumably opposed to the other gods who, you know, they're in charge of other cities in his empire. But we can smile as we see this supposedly local little God doing amazing work on foreign soil, you know, on the soil of the the ruler of the empire's heart, pulling his heartstrings. 
And this decision that seems to be all about Cyrus ensures that the storyline that really matters goes forward. Did Cyrus realize that he was protecting the people who belong to the God of the universe? And from their line will come a savior who will walk into the rebuilt Jerusalem as its king and show the world what that temple really was about, God with us. Now, the writer of Ezra wants us to be sure of who is really calling the shots in world history. And that should fill us with a quiet confidence. You know, this won't be the last time God uses a savvy political move to ensure the protection of his people. I can't help but think of another leader who made what he thought was a clever decision to appease a crowd of religious fanatics. You know, he handed an innocent man over to their wishes to crucify him. A clever but spineless abuse of justice that ensured the salvation of the world. You know, it was God's idea to shed the blood of his own son for the sins of many. So whether it's through a good decision like Cyrus or an evil spineless one like Pontius Pilate, the story is the same. God is bringing his people home. So we can smile, maybe sometimes through tears, but we can smile because Jesus is building his church. Whether it be through favor, like that long-awaited yes from Tonsley Tafe that we praise God for to, build, to start a new church on their premises, or through discouragement. I think back to a previous church where we got kicked out of our venue. Uh, we met at a sports facility and, and we put a lot of love into improving it. But one day they decided they didn't want a religious group using their venue. And as a young leader at that church, I was quite freaked out. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, but I remember the way my senior pastor at the time just smiled. Oh, God must have something better in store for us. And sure enough, that sad little twist in the plot uh, didn't stop people getting to know Jesus through that church. There is another story, a story that means something, a story of life. Which I think is why Christians through the centuries have been able to respect the human governments over them. Uh, we might long for and even appropriately advocate for better and more godly government. But God has already raised up the leader, Jesus, and he's perfectly capable of using secular powers, good and bad, witting or unwitting, for his purposes. So we can pray for those over us because whether they realize it or not, they're in the hands of a much bigger king. We can be quietly confident because the God who is always true is driving the story. And that's true of the world out there and the world in here. Point three, God moves his people. If the first miracle in Ezra is God moving Cyrus's heart, the second miracle is there in verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now again, beneath the, the drama of human life, God is moving hearts. 
And it's worth dwelling for a bit just on how remarkable that choice to move is. Because back in Jeremiah, again, God told the exiles, make yourselves at home in Babylon because you're going to be here for a while. Settle down. And then 50 years in, you get official permission to go back to the ruins of a city miles away that you might not even be able to remember. Would you want to go? You've put down roots, you've got friends, work, a house. Some would have no memory of Jerusalem. Why would you choose to do something as hard as uprooting, convincing your family to come and going there to work hard? Well, according to Ezra, you'd only do that if God enabled you to see things his way. God moved their hearts. Why would a warm and vibrant church like this decide to change everything and so, that, so that a bunch of people could go off and work hard and start a new church at Tonsley? And you know, a bunch sends them off ready to embark on the next chapter of mission here at CLG. Things like that only make sense and only happen because God changes human hearts so that they long for their real home. Because knowing where your home is changes how you see everything else. Aisha and I have lived in, I think, five houses together so far in our marriage. And we, you know, when we move, we think a little bit about what home means, especially in the four years we spent uh, over in Sydney away from family. Uh, we often would find ourselves quite homesick there, uh, missing our loved ones and, and the Port Elliot Bakery and all those other good things. There's no Kranskys in Sydney. But, you know, when we'd visit Adelaide on holidays, we found ourselves missing our home in Sydney and, you know, our little house and our church family, and it all got a bit confusing. But it helped us appreciate, actually, wherever our little family is together, that's home. Because, you know, home is much more about the relationships that matter than the four walls, four walls of a place, right? If that's true... What relationship could matter more than your relationship with your creator? The one who made you to know and love him, who understands exactly who you are and wants what's best for you. The father who loved his rebellious people from Judah and Benjamin so much that he moved heaven and earth and even hearts so they could come home to him. And at that point in history, that meant going to the city he chose, Jerusalem, and rebuilding the temple, because that was where he decided to live with his people in a particular way. That's what made this journey a homecoming. But today he's still calling his wandering children home, not to one city or even to buildings, but to himself. Because just like those Israelites, we've all tried living without that relationship that matters most. But Jesus has paid the every expense for our homecoming in his own blood. And that means wherever you live now, whoever you live with, you have found your home. Because that one relationship is in a good place. And that means we're free to do different things and move around and start new churches. Because... The story is about others getting to hear their father calling them home too. Now, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because I want you to enjoy reading on in Ezra. But 
As triumphant as the return to Jerusalem is in Ezra, the book leaves us with a very real sense that there's still a road ahead. They experience the joy of being in relationship with God again, but there are plenty of issues. The same is true today, isn't it? So do you feel a bit homesick? Do you have that inkling that maybe there's more to life than trying to get comfortable in work? or with family, or in the right house. If that's you, then Ezra would tell you that you're onto it. There is a homecoming story that God is calling you to be a part of, of right relationship with the one who matters most, your father. So if you're feeling that sense of unsettledness with all that the world has to offer, could it be that God is moving your heart? to call you home to himself. Perhaps you're familiar with the joy of that secure relationship, but then you'll also know that pain and struggle and grief on the journey home are also very real. As you look at this group of travelling pilgrims in Ezra, please be assured that there is a greater homecoming on the horizon when Jesus returns and the struggle is over. And we are physically and permanently at home with him. Because as sure as God was able to draw his people back to Jerusalem, he's always true. As sure as Jesus' tomb was empty, he never lies. Be reminded, your home with God is secure. There are better things ahead. On the road home, we need help to see things God's way, don't we? We're prone to wander, and there's no shortage of alternatives calling us to put down roots. Finding our ultimate belonging with our maker is the best thing any of us can do with our lives. But it does mean holding more loosely to other things, other relationships, our physical houses, our careers, our reputations, our preferences... So Ezra invites us to pray a dangerous prayer to the God who moves hearts. God, help me to see the world, my life, my story, more like you do. Move my heart so that I might want what you want, so that I might be willing to leave behind whatever might hold me back on my journey home with Jesus. That's... A scary but good prayer for us, isn't it? And it's the right prayer for those dear to us too who might seem so far from God that they might never be interested. He's the God of hearts and it's totally within his power to change even the most stubborn heart to actually want to know him. But it's a bit of a scary prayer, isn't it? Would I be okay if God answered it for me? What if he changed how I feel about something I like or my creature comforts? How would I feel about God making me a bit more homesick so that I might actually look forward to eternity? It's a dangerous prayer, but so worth it if God might answer it and help us walk closer to Jesus on the road home. I bet those exiles would get glad God moved their hearts to take their families to Jerusalem. 
as hard as it was, I bet they wouldn't trade it. Because point four, God overturns exile. We end up in this amazing situation in verse six where the returnee's neighbors send them off packed with treasures, everything Cyrus ordered and more. Who would have guessed that you know, the former oppressors become the patrons of this small minority group? Well, for those with ears tuned to the story of God's grace, it perhaps shouldn't be a surprise. Because in telling us what happened to those exiles, the author of Ezra is reminding us of another homecoming. When centuries earlier, a bunch of oppressed Israelite slaves got free. And God, to leave no shadow of a doubt as to who was responsible for that, promised this in Exodus, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you won't go empty-handed. And so it was. They walked out of slavery, loaded up with articles of silver and gold from their neighbors. And here in Ezra, it's happening again. God's making it clear. There, there might be oppressors and naysayers in this story, but there are no rivals, no Pharaoh, no Cyrus. And verse 7, no Nebuchadnezzar. King Cyrus brought out all the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And in an orderly and well-documented manner, down to the 29th silver bowl, Cyrus makes sure that the arrogant move of Nebuchadnezzar is very methodically overturned. What was meant as an act of humiliation of Israel's God, you know, taking his stuff and putting it in another God's temple, becomes an act of triumph. God overturns exile. He overturns the judgment on his people and brings them home. And he shows up every enemy in the process. From one point of view, the story of Ezra is a record of a Persian king's policy of repatriation. It's a story of a religious minority getting permission to worship, of moving house and building and obstacles and being a blip. But in all of that, the better and truer story is God is leading an exodus from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the Bible is clear that the risen Jesus is continuing that work He's overturned the judgment. The cross, the symbol of humiliation, has become the symbol of triumph and forgiveness and the road home. And Jesus is building his church. And every act of favor, every act of oppression towards God's people only serves to resource that end. The exodus is on. The book of Revelation picks up the language of Ezra when it says, Fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Leave Babylon. Come to the new Jerusalem, that home that God is preparing for his people, where Jesus returns and puts everything right. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. That's the storyline that dominates all history, from Exodus to Ezra to the cross, to the end of the world, 
God is gathering his people. So the challenge that leaves with us is, which story is shaping me? If the central plotline of everything is Jesus leading his people from Babylon to the new Jerusalem, how would that change how we see our church? Because from one point of view, we're very much a blip on the map. Church has its high points for sure, but its frustrations too, right? We are an imperfect bunch. And with so much going on in our lives, meeting together like this can just feel like another thing that you really should do each week. But Ezra challenges us to see what God is doing here, if you can believe it, as central to the direction of history. It doesn't leave us room to think of church as a sacred compartment in our lives. God is gathering his people. That's the story. So which story do we tell ourselves about church? And how does the story of God's grace help us see our lives here and now? With all the joys and the pains that we experience... Far better than the story of things happen to me or of political ups and downs. Far truer than a plot where I achieve things. We are on the road home to an eternal city built by God. The God who has no rivals. The God who is always true to his word. So let's pray to him now. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that you are always true to your promises. And we pray that you might draw each of us deeper into the story of your grace through our time in the book of Ezra. In light of what we've heard today, please move our hearts to trust you. Fill us with that quiet confidence that even when the odds are stacked against your people, you are drawing us home. Please move our hearts to yearn for that home Jesus won for us. Help us to see our church, our lives, our joys, our sorrows more like you do. Please move us to come out of Babylon, leaving the empty promises of this world to the side and walking with Jesus to the new Jerusalem. Amen.